Uh, well, it is good to see you guys this weekend, and this weekend we are starting a brand new series. We're basing it on the life of the prophet Elijah, and I would just tell you right on, at the very beginning, he is probably my favorite Bible character, and I think it's because I can relate to Elijah probably more than most Bible characters. Like, I would love to say that I'm brave like David. I'm not. I would love to say that I had the faith of Abraham. I don't. I would love to say that I had the wisdom of Solomon. If you've been around hope for a while, you would know that would be a bold-faced lie. I just don't, but you know what? I'm kind of a redneck like Elijah. And you're gonna see as we look at Elijah this week why I say that. By the way, let me just begin by saying this. When you study influential people, you cannot separate the greatness of the person from the context of their times. In fact, this principle is true of every great man, every great woman that's ever lived. For example, when it comes to great uh, military leaders like General Douglas MacArthur, you can't separate him from the time in which he lived, the time in which he served. It's true when it comes to political leaders like Abraham Lincoln or maybe Winston Churchill. It's true when it comes to great civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks. It's true when it comes to an artist, even a songwriter like Horatio Spafford. And you're thinking, who the heck is Horatio Spafford? Well, I'm glad you asked, I'm gonna tell you. Horatio Spafford lived in the mid-1800s in Chicago, rough life, 1871, the Chicago fire, took the life of his four-year-old son. Not only that, it destroyed his business. Two years later, 1873, he is going to go with his wife and four daughters to England to be a part of an evangelistic crusade. Something comes up related to business. He puts his wife and his daughters on the ship. He sends them to England. He's gonna catch up with them a couple of weeks later. On their voyage to England, their ship hit another vessel and sank. All four of his daughters drowned. His wife was rescued, she made it to England. Right when he heard the news, he got on a ship, he headed to England, and as he was making his way across the Atlantic, he asked the captain, he says, when we get to the place where the ship went down, where my daughters perished, would you let me know? And the captain let him know, and when they got to that spot, standing, looking over the rail, he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now we just sang that song earlier, but I guarantee you now when you think about that song, it'll mean a lot more because you can't remove the person and their greatness from the context of their time. That's also true of biblical characters, especially the prophet of Elijah. But when you study someone like Elijah, the tendency is just to dive into the middle of all the great stories that surround his life, but you miss the tough times that forged his character. I don't want us to do that as we start this series. I want us to see how God forged out of those difficult years in Elijah's life, a very, very unique, but yet at the same time, a very, very tough individual. And he was an individual that had the ability to handle the challenges and the demands of his day. But once you see the context of his life, the time in which he lived, you're gonna appreciate him that much more. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you about a, a, a two-minute history lesson. And I can see some of you in attendance, your eyes rolling back and glazing over. Just a two-minute history lesson so that you can have some insight into the days of Elijah. And if you were here a few months ago for our origin story, you may remember some of this. But for over 120 years, the nation of Israel, they thrived under the reign of three different kings. Saul was the first king of Israel. He served for 40 years. David was the next king of Israel. He served for 40 years. Then Solomon served on the throne for 40 years. And so for 120 years, the nation of Israel was a united kingdom. But at the end of Solomon's life, there was a civil war. 
And this kingdom that had been united for 120 years, the kingdom was divided. And of course, the nation in those days was made up of the 12 tribes of Israel. 10 of those tribes relocated to the north. And then two of those tribes, they stayed down in the south. In the northern kingdom, there were 19 kings that served as the nation of Israel. And that's what it was called in the northern kingdom. 19 kings that served. Every one of them, if you read 2 Kings, you will learn that they were described as being evil and being wicked. In the southern kingdom, there were 17 kings who served. Nine of them were evil. Eight of them were good. But I want you to understand, Elijah lived during the time of the northern kingdom, and that is where he ministered, which means he ministered to 19 kings who were all evil, all bad, all wicked. Let me just give you an example. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 14, he's described as a man of deception, a man of murder, and a man of idolatry. In fact, his reign as king was an absolute disaster, and you would have thought that the people of the nation of Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, that they would have got their act together and they would have decided, we've got to do a much better job at picking a king. But you get to 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 20, it says, Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. So Judah's southern, uh, serving down in the south as the kingdom. He reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. And when Nadab took the throne, understand he only lasted two years because after two years, he was assassinated by his successor. His successor's name was Basha. Well, what kind of guy was Basha? Well, I'll just say this. He's not the kind of guy that you want your daughter to date, okay? This is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. As soon as he, Basha, began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all. Verse 34, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. And then Basha dies, so you move to Eli. What kind of man was Eli? Well, you can read it on your own, but he was wicked and he was evil, just like his daddy. Then Zimri became king. Guess how long he reigned? Seven days, one week, and then he was murdered. Omri takes his place on the throne. You can read about Omri, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. Now, that two-minute history lesson is probably not gonna rock your world. I doubt you're gonna get in the car or you're gonna turn the TV off and say, wow, that changed my life. See, I don't believe that, right? But if you don't know the context, if you don't know the history, see, you would miss six decades of murder, malice, conspiracy, deception, hatred, idolatry, and immorality. And if things were not bad enough, Omri was followed on the throne by a guy named Ahab. Now, let me put it in perspective. That would be like Adolf Hitler turning over the annihilation of the Jews to Saddam Hussein to get the job done. That's how bad these times were. And it says in 1 Kings 16, 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he, this is interesting, he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And that's significant because understand, there is no mention of any of the other king's wives up to this point. But suddenly, Ahab is mentioned alongside Jezebel. Why is that? A couple of reasons. First of all, as you're gonna see over the next few weeks, she really ruled the throne. 
She wore the pants in the household. But not only that, Jezebel was the one who introduced the worship of Baal to the nation of Israel. Now, over the next few weeks, you're gonna hear about this God of Baal. Baal was the God of agriculture. He was the God of sun and rain and plants and land and crops. In fact, during Jezebel's, when she was just kind of overseeing this whole thing, if you were in Israel and you harvested a bumper crop, you were, you were taught to give thanks, not to Jehovah, the God of Israel, you were taught to give thanks to Baal. And this was all part of Jezebel's plan that resulted in incredible evil. But my point is, and you're gonna see this over the next few weeks, Jezebel was a really, really, really bad lady. And I thought about giving you a modern day comparison, but I thought that'll get emails. <laughs> see, I'm growing. So I'll just tell you this. Jezebel was the wicked witch of the Old Testament. Just know that. She was that bad. Now, understand, at this point, Israel is about as low as it can possibly go. In fact, in the last part of 1 Kings chapter 16, you can kind of sense the despair. It says he, this is Ahab, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. This is all part of idol worship that they're introducing to Israel. And he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And the way this is worded in the original Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, is the idea he did more evil than the, all the kings that preceded him combined. And knowing that there's, there's this sense of, there's, this, there's like this this heaviness, this sigh, this ache in the narrative. I'm sure the people of Israel are thinking, is there any way it could possibly get any worse than it is now? It's kind of like at 2020, right? You're like, is there anything left? Is there any way it can get worse than it's already been? Well, yes, they could cancel Christmas and they're already playing around with Thanksgiving, but I tell you what, they go after Christmas, they're gonna have a fight on their hands. I'm telling you, I'm gonna lead a rebellion, right? By the way, this will encourage you, 99.5. If that's the only note you take, write down 99.5. They've been playing Christmas music since November 1st. Okay, that'll get you back in the right spirit, right? But this is an evil time when Elijah comes on the scene and if you miss that, you're gonna miss the whole impact of his arrival in Israel. Now, now that you understand the situation, that Elijah is walking into, let's meet this guy. First Kings 17, verse one. It says nothing about his background. It says nothing about his pedigree. It doesn't say anything about his parents. It just says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, so this is the first we hear of him. As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now this, this verse gives us several insights initially into Elijah. First of all, the Hebrew word translated Elijah means this, my God is Jehovah. That's what Elijah means. My God is Jehovah. And that's significant because see, Elijah is stepping into a situation where now Baal is the God of the land. But when Elijah arrives on the scene, it's even his name kind of announced. You know what, just so you know, going in, forget Baal. I stand for the God of Israel. I stand for Jehovah. So we know that about him. We also know that he's from Tishbe. And we don't know a whole lot about Tishbe, but archeologists have actually discovered the, the site of, of Tishbe. And from what they found, they said it was probably a, a place of solitude. It was a place of nature. You know, we had a chance to go to Montana this past summer. Maybe it was something like Montana but it was probably a place where the people were kind of rugged, you know, earthy type, you know, pickup trucks, country music, Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, you know, 
John Deere calves, not that much different than Fuquay. And, and Elijah, as you're gonna see over the next few weeks, you have every reason to see, he was kind of that kind of guy also. You're gonna see he was a little crude. He was kind of unrefined. I told you I related to this guy, right? You don't get any sense of sophistication, no sense of polish, he's kind of blunt, he's, he's certainly not politically correct. But even though he's a redneck from Tishbe, that doesn't keep him from going before Ahab the king and looking him right in the face and saying, listen Ahab, there's not gonna be any rain or any dew until I say so. Now let me tell you one of the reasons this is so important. Remember, Baal is the god of agriculture. He's the god of rain and crops and sunshine. And so Elijah is basically saying, I'm gonna show you that my God is bigger and my God is better than your God. So we see right out of the gate that Elijah is one of those individuals who is not afraid to stand alone. He was perfectly comfortable knowing that it was just him and God. By the way, let me just say this, that is always a majority. Whenever it's just you and God, I'm telling you, forget the odds, it's a winning combination but Elijah had no problem standing alone. And I don't know how many of you have ever had to stand alone in a threatening situation, but you may remember uh, a few months ago, I made this statement when we studied the story of Esther, we will never take the risk to do great things until we believe that one person can make a difference. I would adapt that a little bit for the life of Elijah. We will never take the risk to do great things until we are comfortable standing alone. And that is so easy to say, I'll take a stand. But you know what it requires? It requires that we stop worrying about what other people are going to think. And let's face it, that's not easy, especially in our world today. But as we begin this study of Elijah, understand that's where he finds himself. And so this weekend, as we really get into this, I wanna talk about why this principle of standing alone is so relevant in our lives as Christians today. And it's because, see, I am convinced that the reason that Christianity is not making the impact that it should be making, it ought to be making, it could be making in our culture, is because we now live in a world where there are so few Christians who are willing to take a stand. There are so few Christians who are willing to stand alone. Let's face it, most Christians today, if I were to characterize most Christians today, I would probably use words like mediocre, blase, Vanilla, lukewarm, spineless, maybe. In fact, I was having lunch one day with a man from the church, and as we were having lunch, one of his friends walked over to the table to say hi to him, and so my, you know, the guy from the church that I'm with introduced him to me, and he introduced me as his minister. And his friend looked at him and says, you have a minister? Would that be true of you? If someone saw, in, you have a minister? My point is simply this, for the most part, as Christians, we have so completely blended into the fabric of our world. It's pretty rare to run across someone who will boldly identify themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know, maybe it's not politically correct, it's not considered vogue, maybe people don't feel it's essential, but as a result, I'll tell you, it's, it's one of the reasons we're not bringing a whole lot of light to a dark world. And I know we just had an election, and, you know, half America's excited, maybe the other half's not so excited, but I don't really care who gets elected. All you gotta do is study the, the cycle of great civilizations, and you're gonna see it's only gonna get darker. It's only gonna get darker. And I've shown you the cycle before, and it's like 11 stages, 
Do you know what the stage is right before you go back into bondage? And this is both great civilizations last three to 500 years and they all go through the same you know, bondage and then spiritual freedom and then, and then all these, then they get the abundance and all the way, then you get back around, you get complacency and apathy and then guess what you get to? Dependency on government, which leads back to weakness, which leads back to bondage. So understand that's the cycle we're in, that's where it's going and if the world needs light right now, it needs it more than ever. But I'm telling you, for that to happen as Christians, it's gonna require us to begin to take a stand for what we believe. So I wanna share three lessons from the life of Elijah that are extremely relevant for us, and I left a lot of time this weekend for application. Here's the first one. God looks for special people at difficult times. He looks for special people at difficult times. Think about it. In the darkness and desperation of the days of Elijah, God went looking for a special individual. And he didn't find him in the king's court. He didn't find him in a seminary somewhere. He didn't grab some professor off of a university campus. He didn't find a businessman or a businesswoman in the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company. He didn't even find the individual in the region of the country. He had to, he had to dip down into Gilead and do a little study of Gilead and you'll find out it wasn't a great place. And he finds this guy in Tishbe of all places. It kind of reminds me of a scene in Ezekiel chapter 22, and I'm gonna read it to you, and there's a verse in here you'll recognize, but you may not know the context or the background of the verse. Let me just read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, it says this. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, son of man, say to the land or say to the nation, you are a land that has not been cleansed or rained on in the day of wrath. And then he gives us a description of the culture. There is a conspiracy of her princes within her like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, take treasures, precious things, make many widows within her. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we are getting to a place, even in a nation, we, we really don't have many absolutes anymore. It's really hard to tell, is something right or is something wrong? Or the lines are so blurred we don't even know anymore. And then it says, they shut their eyes to keeping my Sabbath. In other words, God says, they know what I want, they just refuse to do it, so that I am profaned among them. Her officials, you could actually put politicians there, it's the same word. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood, kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets, even the ministers get involved. Whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. God says, when the Lord has not spoken. I told you a few weeks ago when we were talking about this end time series that more than half of theologians in seminaries and pastors across America no longer believe in a literal hell and they're actually standing up in front of people every week and saying, the Bible doesn't teach there's a literal hell. And I, I'm sure God's saying, well, you didn't get that from me. And that's what's going on here. The people of the land practice extortion. They commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy. They mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. And then he's the verse you recognize. I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. I read stuff like that and think, man, God wrote that for 2020. I look down from heaven at the mess that America has become, the nation at one time was built on my truth and my principles. 
And I'm scouring, I'm looking, I'm just trying to find somebody who's willing to take a stand and make a difference. I'm having a hard time finding anybody. But I want you to know that Elijah was that kind of person. And he was rare uh, to his day, but I'll tell you this, it's becoming even more rare in our day. So let me just encourage you, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, learn to take a stand. If something's right, learn to take a stand. If something's wrong, learn to take a stand. Be like Elijah. I mean, those of you who find yourself on the university campus where I guarantee you God's principles and God's truths are being ridiculed, if you have to stand alone, learn to stand alone. Let me tell you something, parents, grandparents, it's time for us to start teaching our kids and grandkids how to stand alone. I'm not talking about how to be a freak or to be a fool or be a weird, I'm just, I'm just talking about being unique. I'm talking about teaching our kids and our grandkids how to say no when everybody else around them is saying yes. See, you have to teach those things. They don't just happen automatically. You have to live those things. You have to emulate those things. I came across this quote a few months ago, gradually the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, then praise. I mean, a lot of things, if 50 years ago, if you would have asked people 50 years ago, some of the things that we're just accepting in our culture, would that ever happen? They would have said, there is no way. They would have laughed. They said, there's no way that would ever take place in America. But gradually the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, then praise. You see, that's our culture, unfortunately, even among Christians. I mean, how many Christians in the marketplace will compromise in a heartbeat just to stay in business, you know? How many Christians ignore things that in the past, you know, we would have stood against, but now we're like, well, it's just the, it's a sign of the times. It's just the way it is, right? Or even worse, you know what? We get involved in things that maybe just a year or two ago, there is no way we would have ever condoned. This is what I'm talking about when I say that God is looking for special people in difficult times. People who are willing to stand alone if necessary. Here's the second principle I get from Elijah. God's methods are often surprising. I mean, when you think about how bad Ahab and Jezebel are, and you're gonna see they are horrible, you would think that God maybe would raise up an army to take them out. Or he would at least, you know, pick someone who maybe would intimidate them, somebody like Jack Reacher. Man, if you don't read Jack Reacher novels, you ought to read Jack Reacher novels. He would just take Ahab apart. That's, that's the kind of guy he is, right? But you wouldn't expect him to bring in like, I don't know, a redneck like Elijah. See? But it's the very same way when it comes to us. Remember Moses, when God, at the age of 80, called Moses and said, you're gonna be the deliverer. And Moses had been a shepherd for his father-in-law on the backside of the Midian desert for the past 40 years. And Moses had every excuse in the world why he wasn't the guy. And I think it's the very same way when God wants to use us. We have every excuse in the world why we can't do it. Pick someone else. But I want, to, I want you to understand, God wants to use you. God wants to use me. He has something for us to do. And it may not be massive. It may be a, an influence or a ministry that you have to one, two, three people. Don't look down on that. Don't ever sell yourself short. God's methods are often surprising. In fact, I have found in 64 years of life, Often they're just totally illogical. But if you make yourself available, you will be amazed at how God can use you to make a difference. Here's the third lesson. And I think we should remember this. First and foremost, we stand before God. First and foremost, at the end of the day, we're accountable to God. And I thought about this. If Ezekiel's prophecy had been 
written to us. How many people would God be able to find that would stand up? You know, How many people would God be able to find today that he would identify as being completely his? I love this verse out of 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse nine. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When I read that again this week, you know what I thought? If God were to walk up and down the aisles of all of our campuses, or those of you who are watching at home, if, if God were just to walk through the different rooms of your home, how many people would he find where he could say, hmm, that heart's completely mine, that heart's completely mine, she's completely mine, he's completely mine. And I know this probably sounds old school, but I'm telling you, as Christians, this is where it's at. I'm t- in fact, If your Christianity, if your spiritual journey hasn't put that kind of steel in your bones, there's something terribly wrong with your faith. God isn't looking for just nice, gentle souls. God is looking for men. God is looking for women. God is looking for students whose hearts are completely his. He's looking for people who aren't just gonna blend into the scenery. And so let me just encourage you, wherever you may find yourself in life, maybe you're a freshman on a high school campus, maybe you're a freshman on a university campus, maybe you're a graduate student, maybe maybe you're a business person in the marketplace, maybe you're retired, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. But I want you to understand, wherever you are, this is what God is saying, I wanna use you. I wanna attract people to you. I wanna make you a unique individual. I have plans involving you to change the world. And as you're going to see over the next few weeks, that's the message of Elijah. And this is what's interesting. You're going to see at no time in this series do we use the word easy. It doesn't work that way. So we're going to see the tough times that God took Elijah through, the corners that he painted him into, where he was forced to trust God and how God put steel in his character. I'm excited where we're gonna go over the next few weeks. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you would put characters like Elijah in the Bible. Obviously, we study his life. There was nothing spectacular about him, probably nothing that would catch our attention. He doesn't seem to have much schooling, if any at all. There's no sense of royalty in his background. We don't even know what kind of home he grew up in. He could have been totally dysfunctional for all we know. But he was a unique individual for a special time. And God, I pray that each one of us in this series that we could begin to see ourselves as the psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made. And fathers, we're gonna see, it, it, it's, it's like we're, we're right in the palm of your hand. There's never a day where you don't know what we're going through. There's never a time that you're not aware of the journey you're taking us on. There's never a day where you say, where did he go? Where did she go? We're right there and you're working in our lives to build still in our character so that we can be the people that you created us to be to do the job that you call us to do. So Father, if we learn anything over the next few weeks as we look at 
what means when the brook, the water in your life dries up and it looks like there's nowhere to go. Or when the flower and the oil drives up and there's a widow whose child dies and it's like, how can it get any worse than this? Or when there's a prophet from Tishbe taking on 800 prophets of Baal, trusting that God's gonna come through at the right time. Father, help us learn from the life of Elijah and help us realize we can be that kind of individual too. And I believe that we're gonna come out the other end of this series, Father, more like you, more emboldened to take a stand, not to be weird, not to be angry. I think that Jesus was probably the most charismatic, attractive individual that ever lived. But it never prevented him from speaking the truth. May we find that kind of winsomeness and strength at the same time. Give us that perfect balance of being tough but tender. I can't wait to see what you're gonna do in our lives and it's all made possible through what your son Jesus Christ has done for us and we pray all these things in his name, amen. See you guys next week.